I want to encourage this to be a, a forum for discussion. I intended to uh, stop and give you an opportunity to offer some thoughts in the last session, and I just forgot to and realized that during the break. I was having some conversations with some of you during the break, and I heard some good things. Would any of you like to share your thoughts? We talked in the first session about man's need for government, how we are to respond to civil government, how God governed individuals spiritually down through the centuries leading up to the church, and uh, how that freedom and government are not mutually exclusive of each other, and how that ultimate spiritual freedom is, of course, found in Christ. Did anyone have any comments they wanted to share on that, or questions? We've got one over here. Hey, I'm Bob Cooper from Ozark Congregation, and um, John, I'd like you to maybe make some comment about the different, uh, in, uh, if that's the proper way to say it, somebody that lived under the old law of sin and death, and then under the new law of Christ, did they, you know, when you when you went, uh, did you feel pretty good about that? Did you feel like your sins were gone, or, yeah. or just exactly make some comment? Okay, that's a fantastic question. I actually do plan to address that here in just a little bit, Bob. So, yeah, thank you for that because there was a difference, a distinct difference, and I think that's that's one of the hallmark teachings of the Book of Hebrews. As a matter of fact, is there anything else? Got one over here. Mike Rogers, also from Ozark. Uh, in re reference to when you first started, when uh, we were talking about uh, the leaders and about honor the king, honor the government, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, even though they are evil and we still, some of them are evil and we live under them, we still, like Christ said, pay tribute to Caesar, what is due to Caesar, and we do. Is it still, though, not appropriate to pray that if it's God's will, that he removes certain people from the office that they are in, that we might have a more righteous person uh, in that place. And when we think about things like abortion and things like that, that our government supports, is yeah. it not appropriate to pray that these people be removed if it's yeah. God's will? I'm at peace with that. I, I think we just have to make sure that whatever we're praying and whatever we're thinking is not intending any harm towards these individuals. Do not curse the king even in your heart is what Ecclesiastes said. And I, When we start bad-mouthing them, name-calling, making jokes at their expense, I think we're treading very closely, if not crossing a line that God has drawn. But no, I, uh, I don't personally have a problem with if we have a leader who is encouraging the nation down a godless road, praying that if it's at all within the Lord's will, that that person can exit office. No harm intended him, but that he can exit office and someone else can come into power who will do us a fairer job. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. Hi, Tom. I liked uh, your class a lot, John, and I appreciated what you said about the patriarchal law, that uh, our view of it may sometimes be just incomplete, that we don't take in all the factors that were involved under that 
dispensation. I think maybe when we look at it, we're mainly just looking at, well, what did they have to do to be saved? And we're looking at it from that standpoint. And it seems to me that God has always expected faith, which works by love. Uh, it, not just faith, but it has to be the right motive, too, that it's love for God, which is the first and greatest commandment, and then love for his creation, which is one another. And that's a it's just such a fundamental part of what we should be that I think he's always expected us to walk according to that. And our sins, of course, is where we fall short in loving God like we should and loving one another as we should. Thank you. I, I will make one comment on this. How many of us in this room, this is not a room, how many of us here uh, have heard it taught and maybe you yourself have taught it, but I'm not asking you to reveal that. But how many of us have heard it taught that under the law of Moses, it was all about the things you did, crossing T's, dotting I's, meeting these certain rituals, going through these certain processes, and that it was different from the new covenant, which is one of the heart, and the old covenant was one of exterior things. How many of us have heard that taught? Yeah. Does the Bible agree with that? No. The just shall live by... Who said that? Habakkuk. Habakkuk. That has always been true. From Adam all the way to the last person who stands on the face of this earth, there is one. It has always been about faith. So I, I appreciate that. And faith working through love. Um, none of that's changed. The particulars have changed, some of the consequences have changed, and the experience has changed, but that fundamental truth has not changed. Yes, Fred, we could... What's that? Oh, thank you. Fred says that's the argument of Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Absolutely. By faith, these individuals did thus and so. Thank you. Okay, well, keep them coming if you have something in a, as we keep moving along here. John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We firmly stated, because the Scripture firmly states, that freedom, spiritual freedom, comes in Christ. But Christ works through truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Truth and freedom are inextricably linked. Now, what is truth? That's what, that's what Pilate asked. And you can almost just hear it. What is truth? Did Pilate really want to know what the truth was? Absolutely not. Pilate may have been a first century postmodernist. He didn't want to know the answer. He asked the question. He had truth staring him in the face. He says, what is truth? And what was the next thing he did? <laughs> he walked out the door. He didn't even stick around for the answer. What is truth? Well, John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth, yes. But what's truth even on a more fundamental level? Tom says reality. Truth is what corresponds to reality. That's true in religion. That's true in philosophy. That's true in science. That's true in history. That's true in every field of study. Truth is what corresponds to reality and what allows us, when we apply it, to cooperate with reality. Postmodernism has thrown our culture for a total loop. I steal some thoughts from some things I heard in the Memorial Day meeting. But we had modernism years ago, which taught that truth could only be found through scientific inquiry, and if you couldn't prove it, experience, or, uh, um, through procedures scientifically devised, you, you had no business talking about it. But what our culture has done is gone completely the opposite direction now. 
You can't know truth. And yeah, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. I don't know if this is a true story or not, but I heard it referenced yesterday that C.S. Lewis may have been in conversation with someone or in debate with somebody who, who finally said, taking his philosophical view to the extreme, I don't exist. We don't really exist. And C.S. Lewis may have said something like, well, how do I have a conversation with somebody who's not there? It's, it's a great question. The very fact that we are able to do the things we do and interact with the world and I can flip a switch and the light actually comes on says that there is such a thing as reality. I met a woman in Lakewood, Colorado while I was doing some canvassing for the congregation formerly known as J Street. And uh, this woman felt like she had grown up in an environment where she was constantly made to feel guilty. Every week, made to feel guilty. And she told me out of her own mouth, I'm tired of feeling guilty. She had aligned herself with a church that teaches that there's no such thing as sin, there's just mistakes. And I attempted to reason with this woman to see if we could find some ground. Can the Bible be relied upon, for example? And I tried to share with her evidences and how the fact that the Bible is, of course, corroborated through evidence more better than any other book in the ancient world. And if you're not going to believe the Bible, you can't believe anything. I could not, she would not engage me. I finally resorted to asking her just to see if we could prove that there's certain things, such a thing as truth. I was standing on her porch. I said, am I standing here? She would not answer my question. She would not answer my question. Because the moment I acknowledge that a certain thing is true, then that, of course, means that other things may be true. And it's not about my feelings anymore. It's about facts, facts which I may not like. There is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as reality. The truth will correspond with it. And truth will agree with truths in all other areas. If it's true scientifically, if it's true scientifically, it will agree with religious truth. If it's true philosophically, it will agree with religious truth. There's no such thing as this is true scientifically, and this is true at church, and this is true over here. That's not possible. It's impossible for two things to be true in the same context, at this, two different things to be true at the same time in the same context. They're either both true, or either one is true, and one is false, or they are both false. But they cannot both be true if they are different. It's very frustrating, I admit, to talk with people in the religious some, some people in the religious world today. They will not engage. You can't even you can't even find not that we want to argue, but you can't even hardly find people who will argue with you. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to face truth. Man's truth is either subjective rooted in his feelings or facts, or is ever-shifting because of its imperfections. I like to look into physics. I'm not a physicist, but I like to read some of these things, at least the concepts I like to look at. I'm not big on the mathematics, and I know that limits me a lot, but I enjoy it. And one of the things I've learned reading some of Stephen Hawking's works is that physicists are out to find a unified field theory. They're looking to find a theory of the universe that will bring all the other theories they have together into one cohesive whole, which in essence will explain the universe. Einstein gave us two different theories of relativity, and we know they're true, at least in large measure, because the GPS system works. The atom bomb shows us that what Einstein was saying about other things work is true. But we have quantum mechanics, whereas 
whereas uh, relativity deals with very big things, quantum mechanics deals with very small things, and our electronics work, if I, as I understand it, because quantum mechanics works. And yet, and yet, even though relativity works with large things and quantum mechanics works with both small things, these, these theories actually contradict at some point. They, one or both of them is wrong in some way. And physicists are very anxious to find a way of bringing it all together to explain it all. Jesus gives us not a unified field theory, but a unified truth. A truth that brings everything together and makes the world make sense. It won't answer every question you have. God often gives us enough to satisfy our needs, but not enough to satisfy our curiosities. But it will provide a framework into which every truth you come across will fit. You have nothing to fear if you stand upon the Word of God in Christ Jesus today. You have nothing to fear. Let the scientists bring what they will. Let the philosophers bring what they will. Let your enemies bring what they will. If they say some things are true, take them, integrate them into your worldview. If they say some things that seem like they disagree, look into it. The truth has nothing to fear. C.S. Lewis made a very interesting statement. He said, I believe in Christianity not as I believe the sun has risen. Not, because, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I love that. Christianity makes the world make sense. It makes the world a better place. I'll never forget something Tom said. Food tastes better when you're a Christian. I agree with that statement. When you have a heart of thankfulness, and you view God as the source of all things, and you are thankful and grateful to Him for that, the whole world takes on a whole new hue. It takes on the real hue. It's real dimensions. The Christian faith should be embraced because it is true. It might do wonderful things for you, and that's great, but that's all secondary. The primary reason why you should be a Christian and why you should encourage others to do the same is because Christianity is true. It's reality. It's as sure as any law of physics that we have discovered. More sure. It transcends this world and goes into the next. It's true. And that sets you free. But I can't be set free by what I have not become familiar with. This word know in John chapter 8 verse 32 is the Greek word gnosko. G-I-N-O-S-C-O. Strong tells us it means to know absolutely in a great variety of applications and with many implications. Another source tells us that it means to arrive at a knowledge of someone or something. To know, to know about, to make an acquaintance of. That's interesting. Okay, so you know the truth. I have an intellectual familiarity with it. I know it. But does knowing it only set you free? Do we not all know individuals who know the truth and are not free in Christ? Absolutely. Jesus clearly means to indicate something more. In Luke chapter 16, if you want to turn over there, Luke chapter 16, Jesus is telling the parable of the dishonest servant, the one who, oh, we've got a question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tom. Luke 16. Uh, yeah, th that point you made was really good about contradicting theories. Remind me, isn't there a contradiction in the molecule itself that there's uh, two different, there's a positive and a negative force and a, or two positive forces which should repel each other? Oh, and yes, that I, so. I don't, at last I heard nobody could explain that. 
But the explanation is, as you said, Colossians 1.17, He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Christ holds everything together, whether it seems to be a contradiction to us or not. He's holding everything together. Yes. And what appears a contradiction now becomes clear as day when we learn a little bit more. It's so presumptuous for a human being to look at something that he has limited knowledge of and call into question the Word of God based on his limited knowledge. It's absurd in the extreme. Did we have another question? Another thought? Luke chapter 16, verse 4, Jesus is telling this parable, and notice what this steward says. Of course, he's getting ready to lose his job, and he's trying to make sure that he's going to have places to go when he loses this job. And he says, I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. That word for resolved, I have resolved what to do, that's the very same word Jesus uses in John 8.32 when he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. It's also almost as if this servant may be saying, I know what I'm going to do. I have come to the idea, I have taken it to heart, and I plan to execute it. To be intellectually acquainted with truth is certainly the beginning, but to take it heart to heart and resolve, and resolve to follow it, this brings a knowledge of the truth, and this is what makes you free. In so many ways, we're going to explore them here this morning. But let's talk just a moment about what knowledge does for you, all by itself. Knowledge of the truth is one of the most powerful things on the planet. How many of you in this room, just to, to hear, have had the experience where you had doubt about something? And you had questions and they were not answered. Maybe they were religious, maybe they were otherwise. And you researched, you asked questions, you prayed, and you finally, after all that, one day, one evening, one morning, while you were sleeping, you landed on the truth and you knew you had. You went from walking in quicksand, treading water, to suddenly standing on bedrock. What a feeling! I have arrived at the truth. I know now what is correct. I don't know if there's anything more powerful than that. This is a desperate generation. It is one that hangs its hope on speculation. People all around us are living their lives based on maybes, on perhapses, on I don't know. I heard one man who said, I'm a scared agnostic. What he is is a man who doesn't want to commit, who doesn't want to look truth in the face. He'd rather live life on shifting sand than on eternal truth. Thomas Jefferson said, I have sworn on the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. At least these are the words inscribed on the inside of the dome in Washington, D.C. There is no greater tyranny over the mind of man than that perpetrated by Satan when he sows doubt and uncertainty. Look what he did to Eve. Here she was walking in, in, in strength, in certainty, and along he comes and he says, Has God indeed said? That's not true. And at that moment her certainty crumbled and everything else did as well. Doubt leaves a soul paralyzed. It leaves a soul oppressed, suffocating 
with the uncertainty and the shiftlessness. And there are so many things that so many are in doubt about. And maybe you're one of them. Why am I here? I know what I've been taught, but what really is the meaning of life? Is there a God? Does the Bible really come from God? Is this doctrine I was raised with really true? I had an elder tell me once that when he has a young person who's struggling, maybe they're not attending church or they're having trouble, the first question he asks them is, do you believe in God? And they go, well, of course they believe in God. He doesn't assume that. Interesting. Interesting. There's nothing wrong with doubt inherently. If you have doubt or question in your mind today about any tenet of the faith, what that says to me, unless there are other circumstances I'm unaware of, is that you are a thinking person. How can I arrive at a conclusion with certainty if I have not at some point questioned it? If I have not at some point said, does this stand the test? Test the spirits, the scripture says, to see if they are true. Doubt has its place, but if it's left unresolved, it is tyranny. It's like manacles on the mind. I had a man tell me recently, I can't name him, but he told me, he said, you know, in my earlier adult years, he says, I admit, I, I was having some doubt. And he was running from his doubt. He was afraid. I had somebody tell me a number of years ago that he thought the reason people didn't read or study the Bible is because they were afraid of what they would find. I didn't re that didn't resonate with me back then. I see that it's true now. This man had some doubts. Here's this Quran here. I mean, there are all these people who believe this. How do I know that's not from God? And he finally decided to face his fears. He picked up the Quran. He read it cover to cover. And now he can say with absolute certainty, there's nothing here. But he had to face his doubt to get to that point. He has dethroned the tyrant of doubt. And the truth has set him free. But he had to face the doubt. Knowledge of the truth gives freedom by protecting you from those who would mislead you and manipulate you. We see tyranny in the political realm is aided and abetted by an ignorant and un uneducated electorate. When you have people who are not paying attention or who are unaware of what the government is doing, the government has them right where it wants them, regardless of what country we may be talking about. Ignorance of the truths of God makes you vulnerable to Satan's abuses, to his lies. 2 Peter chapter 3, if you want to turn over there, in verse 16, Peter points out that there are untaught and unstable people who will twist the Scriptures to their own what? Destruction. They will twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. Now, 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 17, Peter says, You therefore... Well, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, it's hearkening back to the previous statement. You know that there are people who will twist the Scripture to their own destruction. In light of the fact that you know that then, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But Peter says, be more than just, do more than just beware. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is the antidote to error? What is the protection against the tyranny of lies and deception? It's a knowledge of the truth. We go back to the revolutionary era. 
Edmund Burke was a British statesman, I believe at the time of the Revolutionary War. And he made a very interesting observation about the colonies. He said the following, In no country perhaps in the world is law so general a study. He said all who read, and most do read, the illiteracy rate in New England was extremely high. He said, all who read, and most do read, endeavor to obtain some smattering in that science, the science of law. I have been told, he said, by an eminent bookseller, that in no branch of his business were so many books as those on law exported to the colonies. The colonists were reading up on law. Now why? Thomas Gage found out he was a British general trying to rule Massachusetts, reign over Massachusetts, whatever you want to call it, between 1774 and 1775, just before the Revolution. And he complained that Americans were impossible to Buffalo. They were all lawyers. They were educating themselves because that education was their best protection. Truth is powerful, it grants you freedom. It grants you certainty. It grants you confidence. Buy the truth and sell it not. Pay any price to acquire the needed knowledge so that you can walk acceptably before God. If that means losing an hour or two of sleep every night, and I preach to myself as well as you, do it! If that means getting up early before the sun is up, do it! Whatever it takes. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Test it. And by so doing, know it, and you will be set free. You will be set free, as we heard in the prayer this morning, from sin. John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, two verses after saying, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He said, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Romans chapter 6 dwells on this at length. Why don't you turn over there with me, if you want because we're going to be drawing a lot of thoughts from Romans 6 here. It's one of the passages that was given to me, and it's certainly appropriate for our subject. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says that in light of your conversion, you should no longer be slaves of sin. You were, but you should no longer be. In Romans 6, verses 17 and 20, we twice hear the expression that you were slaves of sin. In Romans 6.19, he says, You presented, in time past, you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness. You were a slave. A life in sin is a slavish condition. Are you free from sin this morning? I don't mean that you don't sin. But are you free from sin? Or is there some addiction ruling you? Oh, I, I don't drink, John. I don't smoke. When I go to the doctor, I get to say no to all those questions. I'm a pretty good guy. There are a lot of things you can be addicted to. You can be addicted to pornography. You can be addicted to food on the table. You can be addicted to anything because addiction is a very spiritual thing. I believe it was Charles Engel who told me a few years ago. If I get this wrong, Charles, tell me. But some of those men came back from Vietnam and while they had been to Vietnam, they had been heroin users. Heroin supposedly extremely addictive. 
And when they got back to the country, they cut cold turkey. How did that happen? How does that work? Because addiction is more than about the body. It's a very spiritual thing. We all have to cope with needs or troubles somehow. And you can cope with them with food. You can cope with them with cigarettes. You can cope with them with caffeine. Or you can cope with them by the truth that's in Jesus Christ. Where are you with respect to sin? Are you free? Or has it got you enslaved? Even things that are not inherently wrong can become your master and compromise your standing before God. 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul said, All things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. What's mastering you? If you are free from sin, you are free indeed. Jesus has proclaimed liberty to the captives. He has issued an, an emancipation proclamation. Romans 6, 7 says, He who has died has been freed from sin. Romans 6, 18-22 speaks of having been set free from sin. You were a slave, now you're set free. But notice he said, He who has died has been freed from sin. This is, this is maybe this is old hat to all of you, but this is a fundamental truth, and it's an exciting one. If you are free from sin, you have died to sin. Now, what's it mean to die to sin? Well, notice the language Paul uses here in Romans 6. Notice verse 14 to begin there. Romans 6, verse 14. For sin shall not have what? Dominion over you. Notice verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin what? Reign in your mortal body, that you should what? Obey it. Dominion, reign, obey. These are words of power. Sin, when you are a slave of sin, before you became a Christian, had you under its power. You may have been like someone under the law, fighting with all your willpower. You'd been raised to be a good boy. You'd been raised to be a good girl. You tried to do what's right, but you constantly found yourself falling short of what you knew God wanted you to be and do. With the mind, you appreciated the truth, but with the flesh, you found it impossible to live up to it. Sin had dominion over you. Ultimately, it had its way with you. But in Christ, you have died to sin. Verse Chapter 6, verse 10. This is what Jesus did. The death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Jesus died to sin, he lives to God, and in verse 11, if you are in Christ, you are to view yourself the same way. Reckon yourselves, indeed, pardon me, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There it is again. You've gone through a process like Jesus has. He died to sin, he now lives to God. You have died to sin, live to God. Jesus was dead, was raised, and is now seated at the right hand of God. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead, you have been raised, and you're now seated in the heavenly places. You have followed Christ's example, now continue to. Reckon yourselves, think of yourselves. What's the proverb say? As a man thinks what? So is he. As a man thinks, so is he. Paul says in this... Uh, passage to reckon yourselves, think of yourselves as dead to sin, like Jesus, 
and alive to God, like Jesus. Well, how can this be possible, John? It's possible because there is aid being made available to you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3.16, Paul prayed that God would grant them, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Strengthened for what? Romans 8.13, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. It is by the Spirit that the Christian is able to live a life free of sin. Galatians 5.16, I say then walk in the Spirit and you what? You shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. He says later, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. The Spirit empowers you to live a life free of sin on a level that your Jewish counterpart under the law never could have done. Even if he had the same sincerity and same earnestness and same faith that you have, he didn't have the same power available to him. You have been set free. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And that freedom from sin has given you another freedom. A freedom from an accusing conscience. And this is where I get to the question that was asked by Bob a little while ago. Here is a striking and clearly spelled out difference between the godly individual under the law and the godly individual under grace. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If you're in Christ Jesus today, your heart has been sprinkled from an evil conscience. Well, what's an evil conscience? Well, in Romans 2, Paul told us that your conscience either excuses or accuses you. It tells you whether or not you've done something wrong. And when you do something wrong, when I do something wrong, and I know it's wrong, my conscience accuses me, and in the language of the Bible, my conscience becomes defiled. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. A defiled conscience is an evil conscience because it accuses me of having done evil. So what's the Hebrew writer saying now in Hebrews 10.22? Your hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. The blood of Christ has been applied, and you no longer are guilty. But more than that, you no longer have a sense of guilt. That was not true of people under the law. Notice Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For, then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers once purified would have had no more what? Consciousness of sins. Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews, I don't know that it's Paul, maybe you know, I don't know. But whoever wrote Hebrews is telling us that under the law, you could go and give your gifts and sacrifices, but you retained a consciousness of sins. 
You retained an evil conscience. Hebrews 9, verse 9, if you're there, he says it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. Hebrews 9.14 How much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works? The blood of bulls and goats could not cleanse your conscience because it could not take away sin. Leviticus uses the word forgive when sacrifices were made. A faithful Jew could walk away knowing that he had been forgiven on some level, but on some other level he knew that the deal had not been done. Perhaps it was partly because he knew that this ignorant animal's death could not possibly atone for something he, a sentient thinking being, had done. I don't know precisely what it was, but he lived with guilt to some extent. A consciousness of his sin. Jesus has taken that away. That sin which burdened you and beset you and beat you down for years, He has taken away, He has forgiven, He has blotted out, He has removed as far as the east is from the west, He has cast into the depths of the sea, and He remembers it no more. He's thrown it into the sea of God's forgetfulness, and He's posted a sign which says, No fishing! He's forgotten it, and you can too. That's freedom. You're no longer tied to your past. You are free now to serve Him without fear. Freedom from sin has yielded a freedom from an accusing conscience, which now in turn yields a freedom from fear. Freedom from fear of death. Why is death feared? Well, because it's an unknown. Now, that's not the only reason. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 and 56. O death, where is your sting? What is it that makes death sting? The sting of death is sin. That is ultimately why people fear death. Because they're afraid of what their sin will get them. And that fear, according to the Bible, is bondage. Notice the language in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise shared in the same, he became flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death and release those, release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to what? Bondage. To live in fear of death is to be subject to oppression. Your heart is captive to your fears, and Christ has set your heart at liberty. Death no longer is bane, but blessing. It's not gloom, it's glory. It's not tragedy, it's triumph. The Christian can echo Paul's words, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Which brings me to my next point. The freedoms that are found in Christ are eternal. I was, told I, could, I was told I could make comparisons with the American Revolution. I like revolutionary history. And one of the things that intrigues me is that the founding fathers foresaw the fall of this nation. Thomas Jefferson, even though he was almost like the eternal optimist, along with the others, realized that this nation could not last forever. James Madison, writing in 1829, predicted that the American Republic would last for another hundred years. 
And it says he reviewed a republic that wasn't far off. John Adams oscillated between apocalyptic warnings that the end was close to more pleasant projections ranging up to another century and a half. Benjamin Franklin, when he came out of the Constitutional Convention, if I'm remembering this correctly, I think they had the door shut, the window shut. People knew what they were doing to some extent, but weren't able to peep in, peek in. When Franklin came out, a woman said, What kind of government have you given us? He said, A republic, madam, if you can keep it. These men knew that the liberty that they were founding was going to be lost one of these days. Economic circumstances would affect the country. Demographic circumstances would affect the country. Thomas Jefferson, I believe, particularly saw that the day our nation moved from being largely agrarian to largely urban, it would change the whole uh, contour of the nation. And it has. John Adams saw that the nature of man could be a problem for the freedom. Bear with me while I read this, because this is one of the best quotes out there, I think. He said, we have no government armed in power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. What was he saying? What were these men saying? They were saying, we have fought for a freedom and we have acquired it but in order for this freedom to be maintained, things are going to have to stay the way they are. And they knew they wouldn't. In similar fashion, the freedom you have in Christ today, if you are in Christ, is forever so long as you keep the circumstances the same as they were when you came into Christ. That is, you're giving your whole heart and you are standing fast in the liberty. The moment you let those circumstances change is the moment you abdicate your freedom. Liberty is not license. Galatians 5.13 Do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. 1 Peter 2.16 Not using liberty as a cloak for vice. Don't take liberties with liberty. We observed that Adam and Eve were able to have tremendous liberty but also live with law. <coughs> this is true in Christ. Paul said, to those who were under the law, he went as if he was under the law. To those who were not under law, he went as not under law. And yet he said, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 and 21. There is a thing called the perfect law of liberty. Law enables liberty. There is no liberty worth anything which is not liberty under law. Liberty without law is anarchy. Liberty is the right to go just as far as the law allows. It is not the right to do as you please. It is the right to do what you ought. Liberty is freedom from something, yes, but it is also freedom to do something. That was the case for the founders. They wanted to be free from the tyranny of Great Britain. They wanted to be free to pursue their own happiness. And so also, God has in Christ made Christians free from sin, yes, but free for service. Notice what he says in Galatians 5.13. Do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's what you do with liberty. 1 Peter 2.16, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. That's how liberty ought to be used. Let liberty be guided by love, as Tom was telling us. Love for others, love for God. 
By doing so, you'll be standing fast in the liberty that Christ has given you. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, which I've quoted a couple of times here. When Paul says, stand fast in the liberty, he's not talking about the liberties we've been talking about today in the fullest sense. He's talking about the liberty of the law, or the, being free from the law, which I think Steve's going to be talking about tomorrow. But this concept applies. Stand fast. Be steadfast. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.13, stand fast in the faith. He said in Philippians 1, stand fast in one spirit, striving with one mind together for the faith of the gospel. He said in Philippians and in 1 Thessalonians, stand fast in the Lord. This word means to be stationary, persevere, be firmly committed in conviction or belief. The Greek word is steko. S-T-E-C-O. Steko. But it sounds like stake. Stake your position. Stake your claim in this land of the free, not the United States, but the kingdom of God. Stake your position in this land of the free and don't let anyone move you from that position of strength. Be steadfast, immovable. What's the song say? Glory, hallelujah, what? Anchored in Jehovah, what? Make that true in your life if you have not already. Stand on the eternal truth of Jesus Christ. Stand in Christ. Because if you don't stand for Christ, you will fall for anything. Resist all efforts of the evil one to move you from your position of strength. Thomas Jefferson said, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. Well, that's not really true in the, the political world, but it's true in the spiritual world. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9 says. James 4, 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When the devil's in the way, you're not going to roll all over him. But you can put it in park and say, I stand here, and by the grace of God, I'm not going anywhere. I will not compromise, no matter what the cost. Commit yourself to learning how to live a life of liberty. Isaiah 1.17 says, learn to do good. What? So I'm not a Christian, and then I become a Christian, and suddenly I'm free from all the vices in my past. Well, of course not. Rome wasn't built in a day, and your spiritual life won't be either. Steady progress, said my brother-in-law a number of years ago. Down the path of righteousness without turning aside to wallow in all of life's little alluring mud pits, is how we ought to conduct ourselves. Steady and sure. Slow progress, if that's the kind of progress you make, is still progress. Settle in for the long haul with God's help in rehabituating yourself. To some extent, I think this may be what the moral side of Christian living really comes down to. Establishing new habits. Old habits die hard. 1961, I think it was, and I'm not remembering the name of these researchers, but they were training a raccoon for some kind of sideshow. And they were training this raccoon to take little wooden coins and put them in a, in a can, something like that. And they would reward it with food to get it to do this thing. And for a while, that raccoon was doing just exactly what they had trained it to do. But over time... The raccoon stopped doing what it had been trained to do, regardless of the food they gave it. It would start taking these coins, these little wooden coins, and rubbing them together. 
and taking the can and dipping them in that can, what was it doing? Instinct had taken over. And they could not get it to go back to what it had formerly done. They had a pig that was supposed to nudge a little coin over to a, uh, over to a can or something along those lines. And what that pig eventually ended up doing was just rooting at it like he would for food. Instinct took over. We are not at the mercy of instinct, but habits can be very hard to break. But they can be broken. They are broken. And we must exercise ourselves, train ourselves for godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Make it a concerted effort to put this off and put this on. To remove this from your life and replace it with this. To flee from this and pursue that. God gives us this perfect plan of action. Put off, put on. Flee, pursue. Replace, remove, and then replace. Replace that habit with something that's pleasing to God. Establish new patterns in your brain by the help of God. Discipline your body, as Paul said, and bring it into subjection. Standing fast. Being steadfast. Progress might not be as fast as you'd like it to be, but so long as there's improvement, steady improvement, you're on the right track. We're beginning to run out of time. I'd like to touch on a little bit more. Standing fast in the liberty also requires what liberty always requires. And that is sacrifice. Liberty never comes without sacrifice. That was true for our nation's founders. It was true for Jesus who gave us liberty by the ultimate sacrifice. And it is true for you and me. There were 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. Have you ever done any research as to what happened to these men after they signed that document? Benjamin Franklin, supposedly on July 4, 1776, when at least some of them were signing it, is recorded to have said, We must all hang together, or assuredly we shall all hang separately. He knew what they were getting into. Five of these men who signed the Declaration of Independence were captured by the British as traitors and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons serving in the Continental Army. Another had two sons captured. Caster, Carter Braxton, a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ships swept from the seas by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts and died in rags. Thomas McKean was so hounded by the British that he was forced to move his family almost constantly. He served in Congress without pay and his family was kept in hiding. His possessions were taken from him and poverty was his reward. Vandals or soldiers looted the properties of a number of them. Thomas Nelson Jr. at the Battle of Yorktown noted that the British General Cornwallis had taken over the Nelson home for his headquarters. Nelson quietly urged Washington to open fire. The home was destroyed, and Nelson died bankrupt. Francis Lewis had his home and properties destroyed. The enemy jailed his wife, and she died within a few months. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives, and when he returned a year later, after having been in hiding, he found his wife dead and his children vanished. What did the end of the Declaration of Independence say? Whether you agree with it fully or not, what did it say? We must, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, 
in our sacred honor. And they got to do that. These men were not wild-eyed, rabble-rousing ruffians. They were soft-spoken men of means and education. They had security, but they loved liberty more. And again, I'm not waxing nationalistic here. Think of this on a spiritual level. Security is nice. Comfort is nice. But dare we sacrifice liberty on the altar of convenience and comfort. Jesus told us it would be difficult. He said narrow is the way and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Paul said it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in His name, but to suffer for His sake. That's part of the package. When you became a Christian, you were taking on this other facet of Jesus' experience. You don't just get the blessings, you get the persecutions, which in essence are blessings. I think of the example of Elisha. 1 Kings 19, let's turn over there. Elijah, of course, had gotten very discouraged. And uh, after God assured him that he was basing his sorrow on false information, that God had in fact reserved 7,000, so you're really not the only one, Elijah. He then gave Elijah work to do. This is a great way to deal. It may be a great way to deal with what we sometimes call depression. Make sure that what a person is experiencing is see what the premises for their feelings are. It may be based on falsehood. Get rid of the lie and then give them something productive to do. That's what God did for Elijah. He says, go anoint Jehu, go anoint Hazael, and then I want you to go down to Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and make him profit in your place. Elijah goes down there. He sees Elisha who's out plowing with his 12 yoke of oxen. Elijah casts his mantle upon him, and Elisha knows what that means. The mantle's the sign of a prophet. He understands that Elijah's saying, come, be a prophet with me. What does Elisha do? 1 Kings 19, verse 21. Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. A yoke of oxen? That's the way you make your living. That's what gives this family security. And what's Elisha do? Cuts up the animals and the, and, the, and the implements, he burns them. What was he doing when he did that? He's saying, yes, these have been valuable to me, but I sacrifice them because I am saying goodbye to a way of life and I'm stepping into the corridors of a new one. The Lord expects the same from you and me. I was supposed to open the floor for more questions, perhaps. I've got one more thing I want to close with, but does anyone have anything they want to ask or add? <clears throat> Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry may have been the 18th century Martin Luther King Jr. He was a powerful and compelling public speaker. In 1784, when Henry was opposing certain constitutional reforms in Virginia that apparently Madison and Jefferson were in favor of, Jefferson told Madison, don't take this lightly. 
one of Henry's spellbinders could undo weeks of careful work behind the scenes. There was no way to account for his mysterious influence over others. Jefferson was not a speaker. I think he may have given two speeches in all in both terms of office, the inaugural speech. He liked to write. He liked to work behind the scenes and quietly. Here was this man, Patrick Henry, who was brazen and forward and strong and, and uh, eloquent and compelling. But that was after the war. Before the war, in 1775, Jefferson may have been glad to have Henry on his side because Henry entered, mentioned, gave some of the most compelling words and he may have stirred people to an unlikely rebellion. I may not get the quote exactly right, but I remember it hanging on the wall in my sixth grade classroom. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? He said, God forbid, I don't like that phrase. I know not what course other men may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Spiritually speaking, Patrick Henry was right. There are two choices. There is liberty or there is death. If you are of age, you stand here in one of those conditions today. You are either free in Christ or you are dead outside of Christ. The title of my lesson serves as a fitting close. Liberty or tyranny? Which one will it be for you?